Okay, cool. So I'm going to talk about prayer as a spiritual discipline. Um, and so specifically as a daily practice. So a spiritual discipline are the practices that Jesus did and that we as his followers adopt to try to conform into his image. And so there's a lot of different angles that we could take with prayer. There's a lot of different things that we could talk about. Um, there's intercession, there's adoration, there's all sorts of things throughout the Bible. But um, thinking about just a daily practice and the things that infiltrate our hearts and our minds and then come out as actions. Um, I was thinking, what a better place than to start with the Lord's Prayer. And thankfully, we just said it. So it's in our minds <laughs> and fresh. Um, but before we get there, what I would like to do is address the baggage that's in the room, literal and figurative. <laughs> Um, but basically, prayer, as we've already said, comes with a lot of its own territory. And um, I personally got to experience a lot of really wonderful and miraculous things. Um, when I graduated high school, I took a year off and did Wilder Youth Commission and got to participate in a 24-7 prayer house and spent many hours in prayer there and got to see some really miraculous things, but then also um, a lot of really heartbreaking and disappointing things. Um, and so I want to acknowledge all of that and hold kind of some space for that here. And depending on the traditions that you've been brought up in or how familiar you are with the way of Jesus, um, you probably have experienced some of those extremes, either a lot of joy and elation and breakthrough or disappointment and cynicism and heartbreak. And so, um, yeah, I would just like to invite all of us to just take a moment of silence and just kind of think about some of the things that we're bringing with us when we talk about prayer. Um, because something I think is that if we can acknowledge and name those things, then we kind of create and carve out space for the Holy Spirit to start using it and transforming and, and purposing those things for, um, for our transformation. So just take a moment and kind of reflect. Heavenly Father, I uh, I just want to thank you for everyone in this room and for all of the experiences that they bring with them for prayer. God, I thank you that everyone in this room wants to know you and to be known by you, that they're here bravely stepping forth to be in community and to learn and honor you and to um, be your eyes and ears and feet in the world. Um, and so God, I just ask that you would refresh our eyes and you would give us ears to hear as we look at this passage and this prayer that we've said over and over and over again. And I ask that you would just give us um, just a new practice in our day-to-day -day that might invigorate us and enlighten um, 
our hearts. So in Jesus' name, I pray. Um, so we are going to start in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. If you want to open old school and go there, please feel free or read the screen. Here we go. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So we're going to start with this preamble, and then we'll get into the pieces and parts of the Lord's Prayer. So what is the repeated word that you see on the screen here? When. Good right. job. <laughs> but good, it's prayer as well. Um, but it is implied that we, that the disciples of Jesus will pray. And so something I want to do really quick is zoom way out and talk about where this text is happening and where it is in the Gospel of Matthew. So we are on the Sermon of the Mount. And this was something that I completely forgot. Like when you're doing the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again, it's this little snapshot. We cookie cutter it out and then we pray it. And then it just kind of becomes dead ritual. And in fact, it is smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And it is in a form of a poem. Why? Why is it a poem? Why is it in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount? I think that there is so many beautiful things as to why. But first, we're going to talk about the when. So it is implied that the disciples of Jesus will pray. So everybody on the, the mountainside, talking, hanging out, listening to Jesus, is enculturated in this habit of prayer. Um, and so that is three times a day. The tradition is that the Jewish people would pray morning, afternoon, and evening, the Shema. And the Shema is this prayer with um, that's predominantly out of Deuteronomy and Numbers. And it is essentially a spiritual discipline. They are saying it over and over and over again every day so that it becomes a part of who they are. And the idea is that it will infiltrate their hearts and their mind, and it will go out into the work that they do throughout the day. Um, and then this practice came through the, um, was kind of solidified by David. And you can see that in Psalm 55, 17. Evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. And so this practice of praying morning and evening came earlier in the Torah, I believe, when um, I think Moses kind of set this into motion. And then later, David began praying three times a day, and that was what kind of turned into this tradition. So then the word Shema, this prayer, they're used to saying three times a day, means to listen. And this is where the phrase, um, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And those who have ears to hear, but do not hear. And so this comes out of that because the idea, again, is that this is a spiritual discipline that you're hearing and you're saying, and then you go out and do and move in the world. So you could be hearing, or you could be saying, but you might not be doing. 
And so the idea of the Shema is that if you're actually listening, it's becoming a part of who you are, and it's going out into the world. So it's a prayer that produces action. And so I say all of this because I think that a lot of this is going on in the Lord's Prayer. Um, cool. So now we're going to look at why they're calling out these two different types of prayer. So we're going to start with the hypocrites. And the hypocrites are the, the Jewish people who are praying this Shema during more than likely the afternoon. There was this tendency occurring that while people were meandering throughout the markets, in the morning and the evening, you're not in public, more than likely you're at home. In the afternoon, you're out doing your daily thing, you're at work, and um, you stop what you're doing, you find yourself a place that is kind of high, maybe a, a couple of stairs so people can see you, and then you start being really theatrical with your prayers, and you're like, hey, look at how cool I am. I am fulfilling the Shema. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Look at me. I'm so righteous and holy. You are not. So, Jesus is saying don't do that. This is ultimately comes down to ego and legalism. Just don't do it. It's not necessary. So context, this is what the people on the mountainside have seen and are experiencing and may even do. So Jesus is addressing it and saying, no, nah, don't need to do that. Cool. Now we're going to talk about pagans. Pagans, we have a lot of associations with that word. Basically just means anybody who's not Jewish. So we're going to focus in on the Greeks and the Romans because that's another thing we forget a lot of times is that like the Greek pantheon is fully in play at this time. And so um, if you have read any Greek mythology, you have read long prayers in the Iliad and the Odyssey, and they keep going and they're just like begging the gods to listen and to pay attention. And so I think that what Jesus is doing is drawing attention to those prayers and saying that that is not something that you need to do. I think he's differentiating who God the Father actually is, and that he is not this God that requires you to grovel, or a God that requires long incantations, words in the right order, or, um, or, or groveling. He just doesn't need us to beg. And so I think that Jesus is addressing these two extremes and then giving us a new way to pray. And so it's not brand new because we're used to the Shema. We're used to doing this three times a day already. We're used to um, a lot of that language comes straight out of the Torah, uh, out of Deuteronomy and Numbers. So what is Jesus going to do with his version of prayer? Um, and we will talk about that in a second because I think this last line is incredibly important. Um, and that is that your father knows what you need before you ask him. And if you are anything like me, you read that and immediately our Western cynicism comes into play. So if my father knows what I need before I ask him, why do I need to pray? What's the point of prayer? It doesn't seem, he already knows, why am I going to do it? Does he just it feels kind of like that Greek God thing again, where you, I, mean, I need to grovel, I need to beg, or I need to make sure that I ask in the right way so that God actually gives me what I need, and he's just dangling this carrot in front of me. And I think we need to wipe that from our mind. I think what Jesus is saying is that 
the father is so intimately involved with us that he's anticipating our needs already. I don't think it has anything to do with predestination or the dangling of carrots or anything like that. I think it's much like having an infant. We were at our friend's house yesterday and they have twins and um, identical twins, no less. And so there, there's teensy tiny differences, um, very, very minor. But Jamie, their mom, is starting to be able to differentiate their cries and be able to understand that Elliot generally has a snotty nose and Brooks is has a lot of gas. <laughs> and so when they cry, she can kind of just determine what some of those things are. They just know they're uncomfortable. And so she's anticipating their needs. She's anticipating their meals because she's so intimately involved with them. And I think that is what's happening here. I don't think that it is a, that we are chess pieces. I, I think that God is making, and Jesus is making the point that we have a father that is intimately involved, and that he's not this dissociated Greek God who is just doing, deciding one day that he wants to intervene, other days he's not. I think that he is drawing us closer together. So I think that's what's happening here. So what it implies that God is already listening and that he wants to co-create with us. I think that's another really important piece to this, is that way back in Genesis, we are to be co-creators with God. We are to be going out into the world and be participants. Whereas again, the Greek gods don't need participants. They need pawns. They need people to play with at their leisure. Um, they aren't interested really in the well-being of humans. And so I think, again, this is a call to co-create and to be in relationship with this divine being. All right, so then this is how we should pray. And if you don't mind, I would love us all to say this again. This is in the NIV, so it's a little bit different. And so I did that on purpose, just because I think that when we do things over and over and over again in the same way, it loses some of the steps and meaning. So we're going to do it a little bit different. So can we pray Our Father in heaven, heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I know we all really want to keep going. But that part wasn't actually said on the Sermon on the Mount, and that's okay, and it's beautiful, and we can say that, but we're just not going to talk about that today. <laughs> we're going to start with our Father in Heaven. And so I think that once we had that, we had the preamble, and that last thing we said was that our father is intimately involved with us. And so again, Jesus is starting this prayer with our father in heaven. And so again, I think that he wants us to daily be thinking about the story that we are a part of and the God that we serve. For some reason, we need to be reminded every day, three times a day, that we have a father in heaven. And this father, um, Jesus doesn't, refer to, um, he does refer to God as God a few times, but predominantly uses Father. So again, there is this um, essence of intimacy involved in this relationship. So again, very first thing, oriented to our Father. We are in an intimate relationship. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed, 
that fun word that sounds like Halloween is holy. Why are we praying for God's holiness? Am I going to make him more holy? If he, his character is unchangeable, we are probably not going to make him more holy. So why are we praying for this hallowedness to his name? Um, I think, and this was probably the biggest, probably the most mind-blowing observation for me, was that um, this is about God's reputation and that in holding his name holy. And our job as part of that is followers of Jesus and what that looks like um, is maintaining. And as his image, as his image bearers, we are to reflect him throughout the world. And if we aren't doing that, we are taking his name in vain. Commandments, maybe? That's weird. Why would Jesus be bringing up his Ten Commandments now? Um, but I think that's exactly what he's doing. I think he's talking about his reputation in the world. And that this hallowing of his name, this reminder, this daily call to make his name holy is more about restoring the reputation of God's name and using that in intercession and holding us as accountability. So I say intercession because I think the prayer is doing is that daily we are praying for the things that we cannot control because I think our words do have power and that God is at work and doing things that we have no control or say over or things that are outside of our sphere of influence. And so I think that there is part of that involved here, but I also think that there's a huge piece of our accountability in this. And we've all experienced at some point where the church has not upheld the image of Jesus. And um, I think I've shared before, there is a time where I didn't even want to call myself a Christian because of the associations that came with that. And so what was convicting to me about this is that hallowing his name is actually restoring that body, that image of who Christ is in the world, of who God um, is doing in the kingdom that he is bringing forth. So that's what I think is going on with being hallowed, is that we are restoring God's image in the world, and we are taking responsibility for that image as well. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus thinks, seems to think that we need a reminder, a daily reminder, that we are bringing forth his kingdom and not our own. And so I really think this last part of the prayer is kind of a garden moment. It's that um, it's adding into our day the moment in the garden where we are tempted to take good and evil, the judgment of good and evil for ourselves. And instead, what this does is it reorients our posture and says, you know what? I'm not going to take the fruit. I'm not going to take judgment for myself. I'm going to wait on God's kingdom and what he finds good and evil as. And we're going to release that into the world. And so I think it's a daily reminder that sets us in the garden and replays that moment where he takes the fruit for herself. And I think we say, hmm, I'm going to wait. And it's this daily habit of I'm going to wait on God instead. And I'm going to let him define good and evil for myself instead of me. Next fascinating thing, before we get on to the second part, so this prayer is broken into two parts. If you notice, we have your, 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 us, 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 us. 
And I've been praying this prayer ever since I was a kid. And the second half of the prayer, more often than not, I will say us, but in my head, it will be hate. Give us today my daily bread and forgive us my sins or debts. As we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. I don't think I'm alone, but that is what I have done. And so I think that there is a reason that this is in plural. And that first, we are orienting to the Father. We're orienting to the story that we are part of. So we're reminding ourselves who the character of God is and our co-creative part with him. And then there's something communal about this. And fascinatingly enough, I think that it's loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And I think that this poem, remember, is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just talked about all of these things that stop the cycle of violence that are focused on our neighbor and how to serve. And I think this poem and this prayer is meant to be said three times a day, embedded into our heart, minds, and soul, so that we go out and we do this. Moving on to our daily bread. Um, so I think that this part is a harken back to the, uh, the time during the Exodus when we, when the Jewish people relied on God for their daily bread, for the manna. And regardless of station, regardless of um, where people were at, everyone was receiving the same provision. So again, we're on the mountainside and we're praying for our daily bread. There's people of all different walks of life. We have Matthew, the tax collector. We've got people, the sick and the lame, and all of these different people are struggling and thriving, hearing this thing. And so what would happen if we were praying each day that we were receiving our daily provision as a gift, that everything that we consumed, everything that we received was a gift? I think that would inspire generosity in us and that we would be more likely to then say, Thank you, Lord, for the provision that you have given me. So we are thinking about what we have, but we were saying that that was wholly dependent being gifted by the Father. And so how can I then gift that to the people around me? And so I think what it does is it's orienting us daily to be thankful for what we have and then also be generous with um, the provision that we may have access of. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. I think that this part of the Lord's Prayer, um, of course, we talked about forgiveness last week, and um, we already know how important that is to Jesus and his ministry. But to say that three times a day, what would that do to us if we were to open up this posture of forgive me, forgive us? collectively, how does that change how we're interacting in the world? I also want us to think about, again, I know we haven't looked at the Sermon on the Mount in a while, but thinking about that, 
um, the cycle of violence is over. Jesus is saying that's done. And so that was just said. So then think in the Lord's prayer that we want to continue to orient ourselves into forgiveness. Um, I think that that is incredibly important. And earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, what they said, what Jesus said is, we've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. And he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So again, that's just a reminder to what was said a few moments before. And the final piece, and lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Moments before Jesus talks about, if you do this, if you follow the way, you are going to be persecuted. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. And at some point, you're going to want to not do it. And so what I think this is, this isn't like, oh, God's setting up traps, and I want to make sure that I pass all the tests. I think that what Jesus is saying is that this is inevitably going to happen, and we don't want it to happen. And that's okay to not want it to happen. And I think that's why it's really important to cultivate a lot of honesty in our prayers, which is why in the very beginning, we want to um, acknowledge the baggage that we're bringing with us and the associations that we have with prayer. Because I think that that is incredibly important and it informs how we view God and how we move in the world and how the function of prayer works. And so again, We've spent the first part orienting who we believe the Father to be and the story that we're a part of. And now we've chosen, yes, we're going to move in that direction. We're choosing generosity, and we're going to choose to forgive everyone, our enemies, ourselves. And we're going to move forward in that. And then it's going to suck at some point. And so we're going to ask God that he deliver us in those moments so that we can stay faithful. Jesus, up until the very end of his life, said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This was hard. This was not an easy choice to make. And so he ended the cycle of violence all the way up to the moment of the cross. And he was faithful through all of that. And he asked for the cup to pass from him. And if that was possible, let that happen. Yet he was faithful and went all the way through the end. And so I think that what this is saying is that we want to deliver us from the evil one so that we don't choose, we don't take from the fruit ourselves. We allow God to, to, to define good and evil for us and that we are faithful in that. So ultimately, what I think the Lord's Prayer does is that it cultivates loving action. Why cultivate loving in one's action? <laughs> um, what it does is it orients us to the story that we're already a part of. We take responsibility for what we can do and how we can be the answer to those prayers out in the world. And we're also interceding for the things that we can't. 
And it's ultimately about the restoration and the wholeness and spreading God's kingdom throughout the world. Again, I don't know if I've convinced you, but I really do think that the prayer is split into these two parts to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray later in Luke, we um, that prayer is remarkably similar to the Lord's Prayer in um, Matthew, which told the Lord's Prayer, the Lord said it, and he prayed it, and so there you go. Um, <laughs> but I think that what they were particularly asking for was a creed, because a lot of rabbis would give their disciples a statement of faith or a creed to follow, and they were to pray that, again, spiritual disciplines that would come and infiltrate their minds and hearts, and it would flow out of them, and that people would know them by what they were doing, what they were saying, and how they were interacting with the world. And Jesus gave them this again love God, I love your neighbor. So this week, I would encourage you just give it a try. Try it three times a day in the morning, in the evening, in the afternoon. Bible trivia, when they say noon, it was roughly around 3 p.m. So where would you be 3 p.m. on a Tuesday? Maybe you're in a meeting, maybe you're at the grocery store, but think about what would happen if you were praying for the daily needs of those around you, or you're confronted with forgiving the person in the room, or someone who'd been affected by the church in a way that wasn't a reflection of who it is. And so... What then would happen if we were praying for the restoration of those things? And then how then might we have the courage to respond in action? 